Computer, initialize Holosuite. Welcome to Random Trek Book Review, the podcast where we review and discuss sometimes randomly selected Star Trek novels. My name is Matt, and unfortunately I'll be undertaking a solo mission this time around since my good friend Andrew appears to be caught in a temporal causality loop and will be unable to join me. Today on RTBR, I'll be going a bit off the board as far as the novels go. Um, Andrew's been reading through and reviewing the Star Trek Discovery series of novels as they've been coming out. And I'm going to deviate from that pattern here a little bit as I'll be talking about an older Deep Space Nine novel called A Stitch in Time, which I recently took off the shelf to uh, read through. This is without a doubt my favorite Star Trek novel. Uh, I should be clear from the start here that I'm not exactly an expert as far as the literature of Star Trek goes, but I I have read a fair number of novels, especially in the last uh, three or four years. This is one that I've read a bunch of times. I've had it on my shelf for a very long time, and um, I'll talk a bit more about how I first got into this novel a bit later on in the uh, the podcast here. So as a bit of an introduction, uh, again, we'll be uh, talking about A Stitch in Time. It is uh, from the Deep Space Nine uh, numbered series. It's number 27, which is actually the last novel in that series. It was published on June 5th, ni- uh, 2000, and it was written by Andrew J. Robinson. Now, normally I would give a quick synopsis to refresh the memory of those who uh, out there who have read it, but uh, given the nature of this novel, I think it would be kind of difficult to sum up the entire story in like two or three minutes because there is a lot that goes on and there are multiple time periods that the novel covers. So instead, I think I'm just going to quickly go through each time period and uh, give you a really, really brief kind of idea of what happens. In the distant past, Garrett chronicles his life growing up on Cardassia, his, uh, his training as a teenager, his schooling, and his early time as a member of the Obsidian Order, leading uh, right up to his posting to Tarok Nor and the Cardassian withdrawal from the station. So, I mean, basically it goes right up from his childhood, right up till uh, basically when the, the Deep Space Nine TV series begins. In the present, uh, in a second past timeline, Garrick describes the uh, the final weeks of the Dominion War leading up to uh, the mission to Cardassia to bolster the efforts of the Cardassian resistance against the Dominion. So there's sort of a, a little bit of a side story uh, around this time where uh, when this is in the series, this is when he was sort of breaking codes and doing kind of some behind the scenes covert uh, work for the for the Federation. And then in the present time, uh, where the novel is set, we, we learn about the post-war Cardassia and Garrick's role in it. We see the Cardassians struggle to pick up the pieces left behind after the, the war and the rebuilding of their political infrastructure in such a way uh, to avoid the circumstances that brought them in, into a situation where they, they were sort of forced to, to join them with the Dominion. The three time frames are all intertwined throughout the novel. And they all show us growth as Garrick moves through all three of them. And by the time we reach the end, many of the mysteries that we wonder about while watching the show are solved. And we learn just how many of Garrick's lies really are lies and which ones are true. 
Okay, so first I want to just quickly share my own story about how I became aware of this novel and how I came to obtain a copy of it, because it's kind of an interesting little, uh, little story. It first came out in uh, the year 2000, and by that time franchise fatigue was, was starting to set in for me a little bit. I, you know, I was in my early 20s, I was getting interested in, uh, in some other things, and so Deep Space Nine had just ended and Voyager was getting a bit, a bit tired for me. Towards the last couple seasons of Voyager, I was really kind of struggling to, to stick with it. I had some other interests and, and you know, Star Trek kind of took a backseat for a little while. I had a handful of novels when I was a kid, uh, Star Trek novels, uh, but I wasn't really into reading them that much, so I didn't really keep up with what was happening as far as the novels are concerned back then. It wasn't until about five or six years later that I even knew that the novel existed, and I'm not exactly sure how I found out, uh, probably on an internet message board or something along those lines. But when I found out that Andrew Robinson had written a novel about the life of, of Elam Garrick, I, I absolutely had to, to have it and I had to read it. Now, the problem at that time was uh, my local library didn't have a copy of it. And it was out of print at that time. And it was getting pretty difficult to find in bookstores. So I, I scoured the internet and uh, I was able to find a used copy of the novel on eBay. Uh, and I feel like I maybe spent $15 on it or maybe $20 at the most. I, I eagerly awaited and I think it took about a week or maybe two weeks and finally it it arrived in the mail and uh, it, it turned out to be a uh, retired library book that wasn't quite in mint condition but I mean all the pages were there, everything was intact, it just it looked like it had been very well enjoyed and uh, I was just ready to dive right in as soon as that book arrived on my doorstep. Uh, now, that would have been about 15 or so years ago that I first read through it. And uh, after that, I mean, it pretty much just sat on my bookshelf. I mean, I picked it up three or four times since. You know, every so often when my, my interest peaks in Deep Space Nine and Garrick, uh, the novel's uh, a great way to kind of feed that thirst for some Garrick knowledge. Uh, now, unfortunately, the print version of the novel is, has become really difficult to find. It's uh, become something of a collector's item because of the popularity of the novel. And, you know, because it's out of print and because it was, you know, pretty hard to find even that shortly after it came out. Uh, I mean, I, I took a look on eBay just about a year ago, just out of curiosity. And I mean, it was going on for well over $100 uh, back on, on eBay and, and on Amazon. So, you know, suffice to say, I'm, I'm pretty glad I picked it up when I did. Uh, the good news for, for those of you who maybe don't have a print copy is that uh, it's pretty easy to find as an ebook on on Amazon or several of the other e-reader apps uh, that are out there. I mean, I noticed my local library actually has a an ebook version of it that you can uh, that you can borrow and read. And I mean, that's pretty good news for for Trek fans that are maybe just starting to get into the novels because uh, this is a really great novel. It's so good. It's, it's really good, and I think a lot of fans that are really into the the literature of Star Trek would probably tell you that this is uh, one of the best novels out there. Just a little bit of background. Um, this is the last of the numbered Deep Space Nine series or of novels released by Pocket Books. After this novel, there was a DS9 relaunch series, which were, were unnumbered. And I mean, if you try to figure out the reading order for these, it, it gets pretty jumbled. You know, this this novel was actually reinserted into the relaunch series, and then uh, sort of post Nemesis uh, after the film, there was a ton of novels that that have been released, and a lot of the series are, are intertwined. Some of the characters from one series will turn up on another series, and and so on. 
it's really hard to sort of keep track of it. Um, I've been working through a number of these novels over the past three or four years in the reading order. It looks just like a spider web. Uh, so I guess this is the last novel that was really sort of an easy to follow sequence. One of the most interesting things about this novel is how it came to be written. Uh, when Andrew Robinson was cast as Garrick, a Cardassian, he, he found it very challenging to portray an alien just because he doesn't really, you know, it was difficult for him to figure out how an alien would, would think or speak or, or things like that. So he started writing diary entries uh, as a way to, to help him to explore and understand Garrick's character and to understand and to create a world for the character. Uh, when Robinson would go to conventions, he would read entries from the diary that he wrote and, and fans and audiences absolutely loved it. Uh, and, and he was encouraged by the positive reception that these, these diary entries uh, got. And so he began more writing more and more of them and, and started refining them. Eventually, uh, that sort of led to him putting a novel together and it was something that he always wanted to do uh, so so that's sort of how it came about uh, the publisher then gave him the go-ahead to finish it and, and to publish it and uh, this is a sort of a hallmark uh, thing because Rob Andrew Robinson was the first Star Trek actor to write a novel without any sort of uh, ghostwriter or, or help from an established author I mean he did it uh, completely on his own now, there was an established Star Trek author, David R. George III, who, uh, who did play a hand in encouraging uh, Andrew Robinson to turn the series of diaries into a novel. Uh, and he was the one who introduced uh, Andrew Robinson to the, uh, the editors at Pocket Books. And I guess they were pretty impressed with, uh, with, with, with Robinson and what he put together. And I think that's probably a big reason that uh, the novel was, uh, was able to happen. All right, as I mentioned earlier, the novel is set in three different time frames. So the first, we have uh, one that explores Garrick growing up, and it, it starts with his childhood and goes really all the way up to his assignment on Terok Nor and the eventual Cardassian withdrawal from the station. The second takes place uh, in the weeks prior to the invasion of Cardassia when Garrick is uh, breaking codes for the Federation, and uh, this is just sort of as he's preparing to leave with Kira to... Uh, to head to Cardassia Prime and bolster Damar's resistance against the Dominion. And the third, uh, it introduces us to the post-Dominion War Garrick uh, as he sort of works and helps to clean up Cardassia uh, both physically and politically. Now these time frames are interwoven throughout the novel, so they kind of jump around and uh, each of the different time frames individually, like it does move chronologically, so it is, it is, it's not really that difficult to follow, which I thought was something that they, that uh, Andrew Robinson did that was actually pretty good. Uh, and the publisher also made it a little bit easy to follow because each uh, each of the different timelines is sort of done in a different uh, typeface, uh, so it's, it's pretty easy to keep track of which one is which. And I really liked the chapters that address Garrick's life up until the Cardassian withdrawal. Uh, they, they, early on we learned that his father was a, a gardener and that Garrick never really aspired to be anything more than just sort of a, a common civil servant because that's all his his father ever did, and uh, Garrick develop Garrick's development of a, a green thumb early on would uh, would come back later on in the story. Uh, once he becomes a teenager, he's sent off to uh, a school called the Bamaran Institute, and uh, this is an interesting look at growing up as a Cardassian, where politics and, and treachery and, and uh, you know being strategic uh, it's something that they learn at a very young age. At the end of his first year, he was a key participant in a competition which uh, pits the lower year students against the most senior. 
And Garrick and one of his close allies in his unit, uh, like in the school, they were divided into units. And they played a key role in the lower year students defeating the upper year students in this competition. And he, he did this sort of with the expectation that he would play a key role in the school hierarchy the next year because he was making a major contribution to this competition. And instead he's betrayed and he's denied the role that he, he was promised. And it doesn't really, I mean, it doesn't really matter, but I thought this was kind of a nice little shocking piece to throw in there. You know, you expect Eric is going to, you know, work his way up the ladder a little bit and he just gets completely blindsided by this, uh, this other character that he was working with. Now, instead of continuing on at the Bamaran Institute after this first year, Garrick is instead sent to train as an intelligence operative at, at the Obsidian Order, which we, I guess we already knew was going to happen at some point. Now, throughout Garrick's youth on Cardassia, there's this interesting little subplot where he, he has an affair with a woman, a young woman who eventually becomes the wife of, a, of another student at the Bamaran Institute, who becomes a really powerful military officer in the Cardassian Union. And it, it's sort of like a they kind of keep crossing paths and some of it's intentional, some of it's kind of uh, circumstantial, but they're, they're sort of this ongoing, uh, you know, affair that Garrick is having with this, uh, this, this young woman. And uh, they have these like sort of clandestine meetings and it adds a, a, a nice level of intrigue to Garrick's story that we really didn't see much of on screen. I mean, he didn't really, aside from Zial, which I thought was sort of more of a one way attraction he didn't we never really saw him get involved romantically with with anyone else and i thought it was something that was kind of a nice uh thing to throw in there now one of garrick's first assignments uh, as an intelligence operative takes him to romulus and we sort of heard about this pieces of it in the series uh and he uses his gardening skills that he learned from his father to uh to orchestrate the poisoning of a, of a high-ranking high-ranking romulan official and he makes it a, look accidental uh by exposing this high uh high ranking romulan to a very venomous plant and so you know he's using the, the gardening skills in order to, to carry out this this plot and uh it was an interesting sidetrack that gives credibility to that one time that he, he told odo that he he used to be a gardener I, I thought it was a pretty cool little uh little sidetrack here the next major assignment we we see him go through within the novel uh, involves the capture and interrogation of Procol Ducat, who uh, we learn is the, the father of Gold Ducat. And uh, I mean, this was a really suspenseful part of the, of the story. I mean, Garrick and the, the the partner that he was working with they had to devise like this really elaborate scheme to capture Ducat's father and and sort of take him to their interrogation chamber without anyone knowing. And when they finally do drag him, you know, through the woods uh, so that Garrett can perform the, perform the interrogation, there's a really, you know, really good suspense as, uh, you know, Garrick is sort of, un, you know, under the, against the clock, because there's a certain amount of, there's only a certain amount of time that they are able to interrogate him before people are going to start noticing that, that he was missing. And um, it's pretty, it's pretty suspenseful because, I mean, this Procol Ducat is very, uh, very resistant and really, you know, testing the skills of Garrick to uh, to get the information from him that he needed. Um, I mean, he is eventually, uh, you know, ultimately he is successful, but I mean, it's like just in the nick of time, they're able to, you know, Garrick is able to finally get the information from him that he needs and they're able to return him to where he was, uh, was taken from just before, you know, people start to look around and ask questions. 
Uh, now eventually Garrick falls from the good graces of the uh, of Tain, and he's uh, he's sent to Terok Nor to act as a tailor for the military forces on the station. And he spends his days mending uniforms, and at first he really hates it. He's just like, what am I doing here? Why? How did I get stuck here? But but he eventually he sort of takes a liking to it, and he actually um, he actually grows to really like it, and he he ends up sort of reaching out to Quark, and and there's a, a fun interaction uh, in the story when he and Quark are, are coming to a business arrangement where you know Garrick would design some clothing, and and you know Quark would send people his way to 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 get clothing made for them, and and Quark would get a, a cut of the the profits and uh, he really enjoyed designing and creating new outfits and that was sort of how he got through his days you know having to mend endless piles of uniforms that would come in from the military officers you know it was kind of cool to see him kind of take a liking to it and and grow to uh, enjoy it and actually become quite good at it uh, then one day the Cardassians like just left uh, and this was part of the story that I didn't really like that much um, I mean there isn't much to dislike about this novel, but this was one thing that really just kind of didn't seem right to me. I mean, he literally just woke up one day and he walked around and they had all just disappeared in the middle of the night and they left him behind. And I mean, I find it very, very hard to believe that they would just be able to pack up and, and disappear that quickly without him noticing or anyone without him uh, without him noticing or anything like that. I find it hard to believe that they would be able to just pack up and, and leave all in one night without uh, without him knowing. And, um, you know, there was a whole thing about how the Bajorans were celebrating. And I mean, how, I, how would he have not noticed that? That's, uh, that's the one part of the novel that really kind of rubbed me the wrong way. But uh, in the end, you know, he was intentionally left behind and he's, you know, stuck on the station with uh, is the only Cardassian and he's surrounded by Bajorans. The second time frame was quite a bit shorter and it mostly dealt with Garrick's internal conflict at decoding uh, messages for the Federation and thereby helping them win the war against the Dominion. There are a few incidents that are sort of added in. There's one uh, where he's at Quark's one evening and he notices this Cardassian sort of getting fresh with a Dabo girl and he throws his drink at him and, and starts this huge, huge brawl and the Klingon sort of, I guess, noticed who it was that threw it threw the drink at him and eventually he comes after him uh, furious and Garrick leads him on this chase uh, and eventually they, he makes his way into the Jeffries tubes and eventually he was able to escape by squeezing through a, a very narrow section that the Klingon got stuck in and it was a little bit zany but uh, but Garrick stayed with the the, the Klingon who was uh, you know obviously not very thrilled about being uh, confined in a in a small area, and and he actually stayed with them until help arrived, and and you know basically said to the Klingon like, "Promise me you're never gonna you know do anything like that again." And the Klingon was was happy to agree. There's another incident when a Bajoran woman uh, approaches him seemingly out of nowhere and wanted to speak with him, uh, and Garrick or Kira warned him that that she may have ulterior motives, and uh, you know it, of course is when Garrick goes to meet with her, she announces that she she wants to kill him. Uh, out of revenge. I don't remember exactly what the story was, but it was, you know, it was like a revenge motivated uh, situation. And, and he was able to like talk her down and, and get on with his work. Uh, which, it was kind of a weird, weird situation. 
Now, this time frame didn't really offer a whole lot to the overall story, aside from maybe emphasizing that, you know, Garrick had very conflicted feelings uh, when it came to his role in the Dominion War. The third time frame was one that I found quite fascinating, uh, as we learn of Garrick's life and, and actually life in general on Cardassia Prime after the Dominion War ends. And we see that Cardassia is in shambles. I mean, the Dominion, once once the Cardassians turned against the Dominion, the, the Dominion just, you know, basically just leveled everything on the planet. And that included the house that Garrick grew up in, which is where he, uh, you know, he sort of takes up residence and uh, he was able to put up, put enough of the rubble together to create a, a small living space, which I think was sort of centered around uh, like a shed in the yard. And he spent much of his time working with the medical detail uh, with a Dr. Parmak, who is a, a Cardassian physician who uh, reminded Garrick quite a bit of his, uh, his friend, Dr. Bashir. And uh, Garrick also put together this piece, several of the pieces of debris into uh, this sort of memorial. And throughout the story, it, it gets knocked over several times, you know, and, and every time Garrick, you know, goes and builds it back up again. We also see a Cardassia that is, is quite divided politically. Uh, many of the old school military offer, officers are, are, you know, keen on returning to the sort of author, authoritarian government that ruled Cardassia so long. Uh, which isn't really surprising because these military men would have great power in such a structure. But there are also a lot of people that Garrett comes into contact with that, that see the devastation that the government, the previous government had brought on the Cardassian people. And they're, they're looking for more of a democratic uh, system. And, and that's a movement that this Dr. Parmak, uh, you know, really sympathizes with. There are a lot of familiar faces as Garrick sort of gets pulled into this, uh, this the middle of this power struggle. And we see how influential Garrick comes and, and all these figures that are sort of pulling in two different directions are, are all sort of like trying to win him over. And this culminates in Garrick attending this sort of uh, clandestine meeting with several former high-ranking Cardassian military officers who discuss the future of Cardassia, and there are many familiar faces here. I don't want to ruin it too much if you haven't read the novel, but a, a lot of Cardassians that we see in episodes of Next Generation and Deep Space Nine, they all sort of turn up at this at this meeting. Another care person that he recognizes is a character that from his childhood who is named Pythus Locke, and he was a, a you know one of Garrick's close allies during his one year at the Bamaran Institute. And after Garrick sits and listens to, to these Cardassians have this meeting and, and talk about how they're going to, you know, reassert the authoritarian, uh, you know, style of government, uh, you know, he recognizes that, that going back to the same style of government is going to lead to the same result. And there's a pretty cool scene as we see Garrick, you know, who's trained all his life to serve the state with sort of no questions asked do his duty without you know without questioning anything he he finally begins to shift his political views more towards the uh the democratic ideals and eventually he gets up in the middle of this meeting and he just says you know what i i don't belong here i shouldn't be here uh i'm you know and he just basically just gets up and leaves uh and it just goes to show you, you know, how difficult it can be to change your views after spending an entire lifetime essentially believing something uh, that is you know to be best for for your people this section, uh, it ends with this like nice little uh, sort of invitation to Dr. Bashir to come visit Cardassia whenever he 
he would like and uh we don't really get a final resolution to what exactly happens to garrick but it uh, you know it's something that i'm sure is explored in in further novels and i'm sure he sort of gets more uh pulled towards this uh, kind of democratic idea of uh, of government on cardassia so it, this this part was actually pretty pretty interesting for me to to read All right, now that I've gone through the plot, I think, uh, you know, I've been talking about this for quite a while. I think we're just going to wrap this up here with, uh, you know, I'll give you some, some, some of my thoughts and then I'll give this novel a rating out of five Edozian orchids. Um, this is like, to me, this is the best Star Trek novel that there is out there. And I mean, I haven't read a ton of them, but of all the ones I have read, this is by far the, the, the best one. It's a really interesting story. Uh, it gives us some really great insights into Garrick's character and, you know, where he gets some of his mannerisms, where some of his history comes from. It's, it's really a great, a great look at the life of Garrick. I mean, if you if you're a fan of, of Garrick like I am, he's a great character. and I, I feel like this is required reading. And even if you're just a fan of Deep Space Nine, I, I really think that you gain so much insight into Cardassian culture through this novel that you know it's something that you really should check out if you're a big fan of deep space nine i really like also the the this really shows just how great of a command andrew robinson has on the character i mean when you're reading through this novel you can hear it, garrick's voice you can hear andrew robinson's voice it's really well written and the 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 command he has of the character is just amazing it's it's really a great novel and it's a really fun 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 one to read through and um i mean i don't think it's of any surprise that i'm going to give this uh this novel a rating of uh five Edozian orchids out of five i mean this is just one of the one of the great pieces of uh of star trek literature out there that i think you know if you're a fan of of deep space nine and even a fan of star trek in general i think this is one that you really want to check out and uh you know you learn so much from it, and it's just so well written. It's very enjoyable, very interesting, and um, yeah, I can't say uh, can't say any too many good things about this. It's a great book. Well, thanks a lot for tuning in, and um, in the future, I know Andrew's got a few books that he's looking at reading, and uh, I've dusted off a few of my old novels, and um, hopefully, we'll have some more. Uh, book reviews for you uh, coming soon and uh, of course as always check, check out our regular podcast and uh, again thanks for listening and uh, we'll talk to you later This show is brought to you by Holosuite Media. Computer, list other available Holosuite Media programs. Loading Holosuite Preview Program 4, Blast Shield, a Star Trek Lower Decks podcast. I think we all thought Ransom was going to go into that fight scene, thinking that it was game over before it even started and he was going to lose. But I think the moment he rips his uniform off, <laughs> which is hard anyway to rip a shirt, but to rip an actual like jacket like that, mm. pretty impressive. And then he had like... About, I don't know, I think it was like 62 abs. He just looked ripped. And then he was just like, you know, a little bit of this. Yeah. A little bit of that. I was just going to say, it was the way that he also narrated it. It was just perfect. It was great. Ransom definitely went to the school of Kirk Fu. Ransom Fu, maybe we should be calling it. Loading Holosuite Preview Program 4, The Voyages, a Star Trek original, animated, and Kelvin Films podcast. 
full honesty, I did find that the scene was seemingly long when they were driving with him and, and Scotty to get to the Enterprise when they were in their little capsule. I felt that that was a very long scene driving around the whole Enterprise. But find yourself someone in life that looks at you the way Kirk looked at the Enterprise. I mean, that was a beautiful moment. And I absolutely adored when Spock came back onto the Enterprise. Just how everybody on the bridge, like Yuhura and Chekhov and everybody, they just kind of rallied around him. And it was a really warming moment just to see that original core group of people just celebrate him and happy to see him. Computer, deactivate Holosuite.